next week will be one of the most consequential elections in modern memory in Israel. The election is taking place amid indictment charges against Netanyahu, a rise in anti-Semitism around the world, an anti-Semitism that used to track with the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. And as the conflict would rise, so would anti-Semitism, but then it would drop right afterwards. But then after the 2014 Gaza war, no decrease was seen. The BDS movement has gained more traction, but it is not effective Israel's exploding economy. Inside our own country, Israel's continually become more and more of a partisan issue of left versus right, which honestly I'm continually surprised by. Because if an American supports democracy and women's rights and gay rights, there is only one country in the entire Middle East that fits this profile. There's problems with the government of Israel, as there are with our government, but the idea of Israel is sound. So as we sit at the cusp of this momentous election, the polls, they show a nearly deadlocked race between Benny Gantz's Blue and White Party and Netanyahu's Likud Party. But we also see the right-wing bloc will have a majority in the polls. Now, I could come here and I could tell you who I would like to win and why. Who I think would be good for Israel's security, who would be good for Israel's image around the world, who would be good for progressive Judaism around the world. But I'm not going to do that. And I'm not going to do it for two reasons. The first and the most obvious is that I don't vote in the Israeli elections because I'm not an Israeli, I am an American. Now secondly, what do I know? Now it's a strange thing for a Jew to say that they don't know that they're confused, that they have an opinion but they also understand multiple opinions. This right here is the part that I would like to focus on because we are an opinionated people. The entire Talmud is made up of thousands upon thousands of pages of rabbis arguing with each other, each voicing and sharing their opinion and creating a forum for everyone's voice. There's even a heretic in the Talmud, a guy who's kicked out of Judaism, but they decide to keep him in the Talmud because he's a smart guy and he's got something good to say. So it can seem counter to our opinionated and loud culture to embrace the stance that there's multiple opinions and that the most healthy spot to be in is embracing just a little bit of confusion. When I first lived in Israel in 1997 through 98, I went there absolutely certain that I knew what Israel and the Palestinians should do. But then during that year, something dramatic changed in me. I found that coming into a foreign country with my American and my Berkeley ideals, it may work and it may make great sense in America and in Berkeley, but those same ideas, they may not translate in a different context. Even on the level of communication. I had to learn that my view of communication, it was a Western one. I believed, I still believe, in contracts. I thought that is how the world is governed. If I sign a piece of paper with you, that is the most important agreement that I could make and it's unbreakable. But this is Western thinking, it's not better thinking not better communication, it's just different. Eastern communication, 
was based on action and not on the written word. When we read in the Torah an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it is literally saying, if I do action A to you, you can do action A to me. This is different than understanding that if I get into a car accident and you injure me, I can determine my pain and my suffering in a dollar amount. Israel was a country that was founded by Westerners who had emigrated from Europe but were living in an Eastern neighborhood. And they discovered that just because an Oslo Accord may have been signed, what was a greater measure of where the peace process was, was found in action and not on paper. And I was a little bit confused. I went to Israel believing that there should be no mechitza, that there should be no separation between men and women at the Western Wall. But then after spending a year at the Wall, and then the fall came, and the rain came, and then the winter when it got covered in snow, and the tourists were no longer there, I had to recognize that for about 300 days a year, the majority of the people at the Wall, they were not Reformed Jews. They were not conservative Jews, but Jews whose life revolved around the rocks. And for them, the Mechitza, it wasn't a question, but it was a foundation. And I was a little bit confused. I remember standing in awe in front of the television when the Berlin Wall came down. And how anytime someone would want to build a wall, I would have this visceral reaction on how separating people is always a bad thing. But then my college friend Marla Bennett was killed in a terrorist attack. And then on August 8th in 2001, I stood at the Sabaro Pizzeria on the corner of King George and Jaffa, and less than 12 hours later, it was bombed. And had I still been standing there, I would not be standing here. And now a wall keeping terrorists out of Israel, it no longer created such a visceral reaction of being opposed to walls. And I was a little bit confused. I've been opposed to settlements. I think they are bad for Israel on multiple levels. And my perception was that settlers were racists, they were zealots, they were people who did not want peace, but they wanted biblical land. But then, I was on an APAC progressive rabbi's trip to Israel a few years back, and we met with the mayor of Efrat, Oded Ravivi. Efrat is a 10,000 person settlement in the heart of the West Bank the exact person that I would preach against and talk about his discrimination against Palestinians. But it turns out that when you live next to people for decades, they stop being the other and they become your neighbors. Ravivi had real authentic relationships with his Palestinian neighbors. They had actually come to some of the settlers' homes for Shiva. And then to confuse me even more, Ravivi said clearly to our whole group that if he could have peace where his kids did no longer needed to serve in the military, he would not only give up his house, he would give up the entire 10,000-person settlement. Boy, was I confused. I met with an Israeli Arab who talked about how he was regularly discriminated against and was held at the airport for hours each time that he traveled even though he was a citizen of Israel. And then, without missing a beat, he said, and I love Israel. 
and that this was his country and that no other country in the Middle East could he express his disgust at his government because in Israel he was free. And I was confused. I am confused, and I've tried to get more and more comfortable in that place of not knowing the right answer. Because Israel is complex, and the world is complex. I support Israel's democracy because I support democracy. I may not like who they elected. I may not like who we elected. But I support democracy. And I have faith that that collectively, when people share their voices, and their opinions, that in the words of MLK, the arc of history will always bend towards justice as it always has. Judaism has been founded out of a collection of competing and sometimes contradictory opinions, but collectively always striving for justice. But that leaves the question of what can we do? What can we do from 10,000 miles away as a group of people who could never truly understand the complexities of what happens in that small country and how we influence the Jewish story from this side of the globe. I think the goal is to be engaged in the Mexi and the complex discussion. It's in joining our Israel Actions Committee's diverse and at times deeply controversial speakers to hear what the array of voices are from the left and then from the right and then every single thing in between. Having Israelis come and see how we, the Jews, do Jewish, it matters. And it makes a greater impact than any of us could understand. For generations, Americans have been making Aliyah, moving to Israel, trying to bring progressive Jewish values to Israel. And generally, they've been totally unsuccessful. The synagogue that they would start usually is filled with a bunch of American Jews that have made Aliyah and they're now living in Jerusalem and they go to synagogue together. But then something changed. Our Jewish camp system decided that we needed Israelis to come here as shlichim, as emissaries, to teach our kids about Israel. But the exact opposite has happened. Camp Newman brings over 20 Israelis every single summer And the pattern, it seems to be the same each year. In the first week, oh, they're angry. They're disgusted by this view of American Judaism. How could women read from the Torah? How could guitars be at a service? Now, within two or three weeks, the anger subsides. And then the confusion starts to set in. And then within four weeks and excitement begins to build. They never knew that Judaism could be this accessible or this relevant. And those scores of Israelis that have come here to teach our kids have been what has caused the massive rise of progressive Judaism inside of Israel because it was only the Israelis that could translate to Israel, not Americans. More and more reform rabbis are being ordained in Israel each year. On MLK Day, sitting right here, We had the founder of one of the biggest companies in Israel here for Shabbat with us, the CEO of Wix. And he could not get over the fact that a synagogue could have a black Christian preacher in the synagogue. He was in complete awe. And it got him thinking of how he could bring this kind of thinking to Tel Aviv. There has never been one way to do Jewish. 
The only way to be successful is to be authentic to who we are as San Francisco Jews. If we stay engaged and we hear their story to the point where we are confused, and then we invite Israelis in to confuse them with the fact that a woman can be a rabbi, we're probably on the right path. After reading and arguing over the Talmud for almost a thousand years, a rabbi came along in the 16th century named Joseph Caro, who decided that the Talmud it was just too big, it was too complex for the common Jew to get through. So he was going to do a service. By reading through the entire thing, he was going to get rid of the argument, giving all the answers. If four rabbis said A and three rabbis said B, the answer was A. He titled this new book, The Shulchan Aruch, The Set Table. But this did not last. Because within a few years, something was added. We're not a people who are about having a singular view. We're about having multiple points of view. Moses Isserlis came along. He took his Shulchan Aruch. He thought it was great. But then he started writing in between the lines and adding commentary to talk about what happened in his community. And he named it Hamapa, the tablecloth. Because for him, the Shulchan Aruch, it may be the set table, but it needed a tablecloth. And you could argue, argue that Caro's goal of creating certainty and a singular voice, it failed. Because within a few years, people started writing in the margins and adding their voice. During this election, many of us, we come at it with certainty. What I would like to invite all of us into is to add just a little bit of doubt, just a little bit of confusion. And with that, we may, we just may, come a little bit closer to the truth. Shabbat Shalom.